Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. I'm thankful that God speaks to our hearts, both in the Word and through the Holy Spirit. And so today I want to share with you a standalone message out of Psalm 77, which is entitled, Believing God for More. Believing God for More. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, and God, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you. Lord, we need from you, and so we pray today that we could receive. And Lord, we also, I'm just mindful of our community, I'm mindful of our church, I'm mindful of all of those that are struggling and facing difficulty right now, and so I pray, God, not knowing the future of the restrictions on our state and on our region and our different cities. I, I just pray for those that have businesses locally. I pray for those that um, are concerned about their job and the stability of provision. Lord, I just pray that you would provide for every person in this room that's watching us. I pray you would provide. I know you will, but Lord, we ask for your provision. And we also pray that you would give us divine appointments for those in our community. And I thank you for the many that I've received over the last two weeks. And I pray that we would be life-giving agents for those in our community, that this would be a season where we just break out of whatever shell that we're in and we would begin to minister like never before. And so help us to do that. And Lord, we just pray, God, that this coronavirus and the restrictions and all that, Lord, we just pray it would be pushed back. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have authority and power over everything. And we don't blink when we say that. You have power and authority over everything. And so we ask that you would move mightily in 2021, and we would see your hand at work and glorify you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Psalm 77, believing God for more. There is a term that gets a lot of airtime, a lot of use in the Pentecostal church. We are a Pentecostal charismatic church. And you've heard this word probably, we've, we say it, we pray it, we sing it sometimes in our, our worship songs. It's the word breakthrough. Maybe you've said this recently. Maybe you've said, God, I need a breakthrough. Well, we ask God for a breakthrough in prayer. We declare that God will bring breakthrough because of the promises of his word. And we encourage one another that God will bring breakthrough in our lives as we, as we walk with him. And amen, I want to say amen to that, but what do, we, what do we mean by breakthrough? What do we mean by breakthrough? What are we expecting God to do? We all go through difficult situations in life, whether it's our job or our marriage or raising children or the life of singleness or whatever it might be, financially, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, we go through all kinds of difficulties, we experience loss and pain, and we get stuck Sometimes we struggle and we can even suffer. That happens to all of us. The older that we get, the more opportunities there are for these things to happen. And yet as Christians, we know that we're to be anchored in God's word. We're to be anchored in the Lord. We know this, but it does not mean that we're exempt from having seasons where we're going to go through things emotionally, relationally, physically, and financially. We know that's going to happen. But spiritually, 
God is calling us to be anchored in him, and we're reminded of that. And so oftentimes what happens is we're always looking for a breakthrough. We're like, God, I need a, I need a breakthrough. And so somebody will say it on the stage, like, God's going to bring breakthrough. And we're like, yes. Is that, did you like that? Was that good? Yes. Lord, we need a breakthrough. And I'm concerned at times that we don't know what we're asking for. I'm concerned that sometimes, even as good Pentecostals and Charismatics, we sort of lose our biblical mind on what it is that we think God is going to do as a result of us believing for and expecting a breakthrough in our lives. Yes, we need God to bring deliverance. Yes, we need God to bring provision. Yes, we need God to bring freedom. But I feel like a lot of times what we're doing is we're asking God to do for us what we're unwilling to participate in. And let me just tell you, right, that is a concept that is not theology. That is wishful thinking. That is not biblical thinking. Now, I believe in the supernatural God. Listen, I'm thoroughly a Pentecostal. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. But you're talking to a person who has prayed for thousands of people. I mean, I've stood at the altar, and I've heard almost every prayer request you can hear. And I pray in faith, and I believe that God will move mountains. But I also believe that often the breakthrough that we need is a breakthrough of revelation in our mind. We need understanding more often than we just need God to get us out of a situation. And if we're not careful, we're going to ask God or expect God to do things that God just is not going to do. I mean, I can remember, I've been at services where people are praying for miracle weight loss. You laugh. I, lo- I would like that. And that's fine. And, and, and sometimes I get criticized for even bringing it up because there are people that are like, Ben, God does that. And he might do that. But let me tell you, if you wake up tomorrow and God gives you miracle weight loss and you shed 50 pounds, you did not participate in the discipline that was required to get you there. So I'll tell you what's going to happen. You will not stay there. And so what God wants to do in bringing breakthrough is he wants to give us follow-through so that we can actually have breakthrough. And when that happens, we can believe God for more. When we get to a place where we're working with God, walking with God, he's inviting us into walking with him, not just him, poof, you know, throwing pixie dust all over, all over our situations in life so that we don't have to face anything. Have you had to face anything? Have you ever wondered why God just didn't take it out of your life? Well, there's value in the process of God walking you through situations so that you and I can grow up in Christ. He doesn't patronize us. He wants us to be sustained. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to be mature. And so he's not patronizing us. He's not penalizing us. But when he doesn't take something out of our life, he wants us to grow through it and go through it with him. And there's value in us learning how to do that. So the breakthrough is God helping us to be disciplined. The breakthrough is God helping us to get on the right path. The breakthrough is us finally submitting and surrendering to God even though we haven't been doing that. I mean, I believe in miracles. Don't get me wrong. And if God wants to give me miracle weight loss, I'm happy, you know. But I still am going to want that eggnog latte. You understand what I'm saying? And I didn't have to make the choice. So what I'm asking for often, especially when you think of like a new year, is God, give me the discipline to say no. And give me the discipline to say yes. Put wind in my sails. Holy Spirit, fill me in such a way where I pause and I take the right steps when I need to. Help me to partner with you. Fill me with the Spirit. 
and don't just give me this divine bubble life. I, I just think that's a fictitious life, and I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that too many Pentecostals believe in something that just doesn't happen. How do I know? Because what happens is when you start to believe in that kind of breakthrough, you get disappointed so much, and you begin to go on this emotional roller coaster, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, you start to blame God for what you think God could have done, should have done, would have done, but didn't do, and at the end of the day, we stop looking in the mirror and take a responsibility for the life that God has given to us to partner with him. Supernatural. He puts his super on our natural. You understand? And this is why this comes together. And it's so important for us as we sort of face what I'm going to share with you today, this believing God for more, him increasing our ability to hear from him, you know, unstopping our ears so that we're submitted and we're surrendered and we're walking through this in a way where we're not just standing, but we're advancing. You know, one of the things that happens when we go through a long period of time, like a weary season of battle, which maybe the last year was, or maybe regardless of the last year, maybe you have been facing a battle, some kind of grief or loss or difficulty or pain, and you, you sort of take up your shield and you stand there, right, for a period of time. You're like, I may not advance right now, but I am not gonna fall down, I'm gonna stand. And so you faithfully put up your shield, the shield of faith, and the battle's raging like bam, bam, bam. And so you're standing, you're standing, and then the battle stops. The thing stops, but you're still standing there with the shield of faith. And you got to put that shield down to realize it's time to advance. And so we stay there in survival instead of believing God and stepping into more. And what I want to talk to you about today is how we move from this survival place to really taking the steps that we need to and having fresh faith and believing God for more. We're going to do that out of Psalm 77. Now let me give you some context real quickly. The book of Psalms, Psalms is 150 chapters and it's really filled with spirit-inspired songs and laments and poems and praises to and about God. And really the Hebrew word for Psalms is praises. And that's what you find here throughout the entire book. It's divided into five books. 150 chapters is divided into five books. And the psalm that we're reading today, Psalm 77, is in book three. Sometimes scholars will call that the dark book of the psalms. It sounds like something out of like the Lord of the Rings. The dark book of the psalms. We found that in the Mount Mordor. You know, it's like Asaph is the writer of Psalm 77 and almost all of the other psalms in book three and he was a leader in one of King David's Levitical choirs. You could call him a chief musician in the house of the Lord. And we see something in Psalm 77, which you find in a lot of psalms. It's sort of a conundrum. It's, it's really difficult. It's, it's sort of the disappointment of a person. And it's more of a personal reflection. Many of the psalms that are difficult and you can feel the pain and the disappointment are based on sort of this national perspective of what's happening with Israel. But we don't know what exactly is happening in Asaph's life, but it feels like a personal reflection of his own discouragement and disappointment. So it makes it a very unique psalm. There are very few of them actually that are like this. And my personal view of this text is that Asaph was wrestling through how Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon, and he was grappling with how that, how that has been going for his own life. And so let me read it to you, verse 1. He says this, My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. 
In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah, or pause. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Listen to this. Talk about unbelief. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? And then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. God has changed. I shall remember. Listen, he shifts. I love this. This is like this, uh, we want to interrupt this regularly broadcasted complaint with a divine moment of praise from our sponsor. It's powerful. He just says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. And I will meditate on all your work. And I will muse and consider your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Come on, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. And you have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Or pause, think about this, consider this. The next five verses, which completes the chapter, is all about recalling the story of Exodus, that God had delivered his people Israel with a mighty hand. And it's important that we understand that because he's going to reflect on what God had done because he's moving, not in optimism, but in faith for what God will do. And these 20 verses bring us on such a roller coaster of thoughts and emotions But finally, he lands on fresh faith. And I think he lands in a place of choosing to believe God despite his circumstances because something was revealed to him. And I think there's a power in the process. There's a power in the process. And it shows us a process that maybe we're not used to. Maybe we reject. Maybe we resist because in Pentecostal style or format, we're used to calling out breakthrough, which is sort of this miraculous, I don't have to be involved, when in reality, we notice that God is constantly inviting us into a process whereby we walk with Him more closely. And that's what I see in this psalm, and I think it actually will bring about what we're praying for, and there are three things that I want to pull out of here that I think will be helpful to us. And the first is this, what we read about from Psalm 77, is we must process our pain. We must process our pain. Let me read to you verse 1 through 6 in the New Living Translation, just for a better perspective. This is what it says, I cry out to God, yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan. I'm overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed to even pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and I ponder the difference now. Such a difference. This passage gives us the specifics or doesn't give us the specific of what he's facing. But I believe these words carry pain. 
These words carry his pain. And let me just tell you what I think he's saying based on my interpreting of these six verses. I think he's saying, I'm in deep trouble. I'm experiencing very serious turmoil in my soul. I think he's saying, my soul has not been comforted, even though I've tried. Even though I have prayed, even though I have tried, I am not comforted right now. God has not answered me. I think he's saying, I moan, I'm in pain. When a person moans, they're in pain, in overwhelming pain with a desire for change. Have you ever been there before? I'm in overwhelming pain. I moan because I want change so bad. I want change. Then he says, I'm not able to sleep. I can't even sleep right now. I am too distressed to pray. Listen to the Message Bible, which I rarely quote, but it says, I am not able to even say what is bothering me. I don't even know how to articulate a prayer right now. That's what he said. I can only think of how things used to be. Now, this is not very encouraging. This is a man talking about how discouraged he is, how difficult things are for his soul. Now, we can look down on that and go, brother, you need to walk in victory. <laughs> we do that. We, we, listen, I actually am not indicting the entire Pentecostal church, but I've been a Pentecostal for 22 years. And my beef is this, is that often we actually condone suppression Because we don't realize that in order for us to get delivered, we've got to be honest. And if we're honest, then we can get delivered and the God of the Bible will excavate our hearts and replace it with something better. But he's wanting us to go to these places of real and honest confession. And when we do that and we let him have our pain and we invite him into our pain like the psalmist, we won't be led by our emotions. Emotions are real. Feelings are real, but they are not always right. And so when we want to get to a place of truth and we want to believe God for more and stop just surviving, what's got to happen is we've got to process our pain and we've got to resist this idea that victory means that we don't talk about it. Victory means that we avoid it. Victory means we act like it's not there. That is not victory, friends. That is the sentiment that boys like me grew up with where you be a man. Yeah, how's that working out? I mean, it's like every talk show has young people on it talking about the pain of their family of origin because they were told dumb things like, be a man. What does that mean? Don't cry. Don't talk about it. Don't let anybody into your heart. Don't be vulnerable. Don't be honest. See, feelings are real, but they're not always right. But you'll never get that transformation unless you let in what God's truth you got to be able to have a safe place to talk and process and, and do all of that. You know, I learned last year, I learned last year that I get hurt a lot more than I thought I did. That's one thing I learned. I, I, I resisted it. I'm just being straight, honest with you. I'm not, there's no sermon illustration or me trying to, you know, get you to agree that you too have this same problem. I'm just going to be honest with you. I thought I was pretty strong and, uh, and I didn't get hurt that easy. But you know what? Once I started monitoring, when anger started, you know, the, the temperature started to rise here and there, right? The thermometer, I started to identify it and be honest about it. It was rising, and I'm going like, I thought I dealt with that. And you can act like it's not there, but in reality, you're only hurting yourself. We need to process our pain. 
This means we talk about it, we're honest about it, we allow the rawest form to come out in our relationship with God and trusted people. Some people live in their pain. It becomes a sense of identity. Their life is all about their pain and how bad things are. And we live in self-pity and self-focus. And, and like an introspection that it builds in our life becomes unhealthy. We're, we're consumed with talking about our pain and every angle of it. Some people get there. They start to live. They live out of their pain. They live for their pain. And they don't want to, but that's what can happen. Your identity can become what you've gone through or the pain that you have. And that's unhealthy. And, and some of us can avoid their pain. And so we shelf it and we develop coping mechanisms and we medicate that pain. Like I talked to you about a few weeks ago that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when your heart's sick, you want to feel better and you want to numb it. And so whatever it takes to numb the pain, then you create an addiction of some kind. And now you have the pain, which is the root system of the tree, and you create something on top of it, this addiction that's got all these branches and all this fruit. And then you recognize, I don't want all of this addiction. I only started it to numb the pain, and so now you recognize you got to chop the tree down, but after chopping the tree of addiction down, you know what? you still got to deal with the root system that got you into the addiction in the first place. And so the coping can happen when we avoid, so we can live in and live for our pain, or we can avoid our pain, but I'm actually saying to you today that we need to process our pain. If you've been angry over the last year, you should be asking the question, why am I so angry? If somebody brings up a topic that fires you up, my question is why? Why? When you have peace like a river in your soul. Come on. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace. You sing that and then you go home and you're like. Stop watching that news, man. Got to get back to the good news. And then we get mad at other people because you're not mad like I am. It's like, I don't want to be. Well, you're not educated and you're not aware. I'm aware of what's more important. But why is that an indictment? The way I read it, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I should actually have self-control in my life. That is a quality that we want in our life. Self-control. So if you don't see me manifesting anger, it is not a lack of concern or care. It could just be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But when we're living in pain, we start to lodge accusations at everyone else. And listen, I'll tell you what, when you start processing your pain, you look in the mirror more and you stop looking at everybody else criticizing and judging them a whole lot less. And you become a life-giving source rather than somebody that saps from everyone else and steals and robs their joy. The healthy practice is to process our pain. You know, in the Bible, I knew I was going to spend most of my message in the first point, so I'm not uh, displeased with that. But there are a lot of people in the Bible that have struggled with disappointment and discouragement. Not all of them got to the place of faith. That's what we want to do. We want to get to a place of believing God for more. But if we're going to do that, we've got to process our pain. There are many in the Bible that are examples for us, both good examples and bad examples. Job said in Job 7.7, he said, I will never see happiness again in my life. That's how he processed his pain. I will never see happiness again in my life. Moses said to God in Deuteronomy chapter 1, God, what you gave me is too burdensome and it will crush me. 
Sounds very definitive, doesn't it? Lacks trust or any questions whatsoever. Elijah complained to God because of his situation, and he asked God to take his life. He thought he was the only one. I'm the only one. Take my life now, Lord. Number four is Jonah complained against God, and he told God to take his life. I don't want to be complicit in your mercy towards people that don't deserve it. Kill me now. I think that plan is terrible. They don't deserve it. I know better. I knew you were going to do this because you're merciful. Take my life. I mean, at least he said it. Some of us may have thought it. King David spoke about the heaviness of his sin and God's conviction in Psalm 32. And then he comes to a place where he said, finally, my bones were aching. I couldn't sleep because the conviction of my sin was so heavy. Finally, I confess my sin to the Lord. That was when he got freedom. That was when he got his breakthrough. His breakthrough didn't come until his confession of sin was given. Friend, you cannot cry out to God for a breakthrough at the altar when you don't have a confession of your own sin. So we're concealing our sin, asking for God to bypass what the Lord wants to excavate and deliver us from. You know, I've got some messages coming that, you know, they're going to make you swallow a couple times. But one of them is that sometimes we are crying out to God for deliverance, and the Lord is the one wanting to transform and change us, and he's using all things. He didn't necessarily author all things in our life, but he's using all things in our life to make us like Jesus Christ, and so we don't want to go through the process, so what we're asking for is to be delivered from God. Just going to let you take that one in. Just going to let you think about that one. No, shame, listen, whatever pain doesn't get transformed, it will be transferred to another person in your life. It will be transmitted and it will be transferred through you to other people. That's called generational curses, family of origin sin. That's where you start looking at your kids and going like, man, you, you, you kind of act like the bad part of me. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's so important for us to process our pain so that it doesn't get transferred, but rather gets transformed. 58 years ago, November 22nd, 1963, you might remember John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, our president at the time. What you may not remember, and I know this because that was my birthday, and so I'm like everybody, you look up like what important things have happened on your birthday, and that was not encouraging. But there was another person that actually died on November 22nd, 1963, one hour before John F. Kennedy died. You know who that was? It was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the prolific author, and he collapsed in his home in Oxford, and his death was overshadowed because of obviously what had been happening in our nation. What you may not know is that he had written a final publication before he died, and that publication was called, We Have No Right to Happiness. I just want to say that again. His last publication before he died, which was literally that day going to print, and it would come out in December, it was called, We Have No Right to happiness. I read the article recently, and it was amazing because what he was talking about was that we place our hope on the externals, the things that we cannot control. And so we place our happiness, like our idea of happiness comes from what does and doesn't happen externally. And as a result of that, we blame God when things don't go our way. That's, he just had this brilliant mind to really process spiritual truth. 
And so he was really talking about this conundrum that Christians often find themselves in. You have no right to everything going the way that you want it to. But in Christ, he's given his life for us to have on the inside what nobody can take from us. Amen. This is what we're talking about. And C.S. Lewis knew that, and he was trying to help people in his life understand that. You say, well, where did he get that from? What you might not know about C.S. Lewis is that he wasn't married until he was 41, later in life. Or some would say that's later in life, 41. And his wife contracted cancer and died four years later. So he waits for this right person, and they get married, and they have this beautiful marriage. She gets cancer and dies four years later, and he wrote a 76-page book called An Observation of Grief, where he processes his pain. Maybe you didn't know this, but sometimes that's what authors are doing. They're processing their pain, and when you read it, you resonate with it. Have you ever read something like The Great Divorce or The Problem with Pain or An Observation of Pain from C.S. Lewis or someone else, and you go, you know, I really benefited from that. There's a book called Even in Our Darkness that I read recently. I've given it away to as many pastors as possible. And it's a book of a pastor that just is raw. He's more honest than, I read it in two days. I mean, it's a thick book. I read it in two days, gave it to my wife. She read it in a week. And she said to me, I've never read a book with somebody being so honest in the, in the, as a pastor. I mean, it was just a raw honesty and confession of his life. And it, it actually did something to me. It activated my wanting to read books again. And I was appreciative for it. The reality here is is that we've got to process our pain or our pain will be perpetuated in our lives. If you want breakthrough and you want to believe God for more, this is a very important piece of our Christian life. Amen. Second point, we must deal with our doubt. We must deal with our doubt. Listen to verse 7 through 10. He moves from processing pain to expressing his doubt. Listen to what he says. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in his anger, now it's God's problem. Now it's God's doing this to me. Has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High, yeah, he must have changed. God must be different. What's he saying? I think he's saying, will God actually fulfill his promises? Is he somebody that will do what he says he's going to do? Will God be to us now like he was before? I'm kind of tired of hearing everybody give testimony about how God was to them because he's certainly not that way to me right now. Is God really who people say he is when they speak of his goodness? Is God good? Really? Has God changed? Is he no longer compassionate? Does he still bind up the brokenhearted? Does he still set the captives free? Does he still heal? Does he still save? Does he still deliver? Does God bring breakthrough, you crazy charismatics? Not you, you know, but. Does he really? Is he really going to do that? Is that really what God is like? Are we just getting hyped up and whipped up? And is it just not really who God is? See, what happens When we move from a place of unhealthiness in our pain and situation, if we don't process things with the Lord, if we don't process things biblically, listen to me, if we do not process things rightly, we will start to practice unbelief. If you do not deal with your doubt, your doubt will become unbelief, and that is the seedbed for atheism. Doubt is an experience, unbelief is a practice. Doubt is something that all of us experience, but unbelief is where we don't deal with doubt and we walk in our doubt. We don't 
we start to question God. We move from asking God a question to questioning God. You know there are two different kinds of questions. If you were to sit with me, I can tell the difference. I know when I'm being interrogated. And children just can't even hide it, you know, when they're asking, like, well, what's this going to do? What's this going to do? You're like, you're not really asking me a question. Every now and again, I get a little snarky. Sorry, it happens. I hope I never do it to you. But I go, do you really want to (laughs) know? It's like, you know, when somebody asks you a question and you can tell, you're not really asking me a question. You're just making a statement repackaged as a question, and I don't appreciate that. Because you've never done that before, right? Married couples, come on. It's like that. Were you going to take the garbage out? You're just like, what just happened in my life right now? <laughs> it's like, is that really a question? <laughs> or is that questioning me? <laughs> it's messed up. And so I get a little sarcastic whenever I hear those in my house, particularly with my kids. And I go, oh, I never thought of that. Thank you. It's my way of dealing with it, you know, so you're welcome if you want to use that. I don't, like, yell or get angry or do that, but that's my way of, of doing it so that I can sort of diffuse the problem, which it doesn't always do, so. If we don't deal with our doubt, our doubt will become unbelief. When I meet with people who call themselves atheists, I can usually hear pain in their unbelief. There are a lot of people in the church over the last five, ten years that have come out as professing atheists. Part of what has happened is that the body of Christ, in some ways, have been a bad example to them. That's true. But I don't want to throw out sort of this idea that maybe they didn't follow the Lord the way that they should have as well. You know, it's amazing to me. It's like there's so much out there. So many books have been written, so many blogs, so much commentary, so many podcasts about how horrible the church has done it. Let me just tell you something. I think a lot of that is people not taking personal responsibility for their own sin. I mean, at some point, people, we got to look in the mirror and say, I got some sin in my life too. And I have noticed when people are unwilling to do that, it is so easy to judge someone else. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not perfect. That's right. That's not a sentence, just a statement. This is amazing to me. Now, now listen, Christians, we want to be a good example. Amen. We want to do good works, and we want to bring good news. Those are the three goods that we want to do in the world unto others. But the fact is, is that when you're not perfect, you can bank on the fact that we're going to let people down. We are going to bring disappointment. And that's why we are people that ask for forgiveness and we are people that offer forgiveness. That is why forgiveness is so vital and important. But one of the reasons why people move down the road of atheism is because they did not deal with their doubt properly. And you say, well, am I supposed to deal with it perfectly? No, pain comes into your life, and all of a sudden you enter into a conundrum. Maybe you lost someone. And I've heard this again and again in in my office over the years. God took this person from me. And it's really difficult to tell someone in their pain, actually, God didn't take them from you. This all goes back to the garden where God said, do not eat from this tree. And when you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And when you die, that every person, yes, every little child, no matter how cute they are, are born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature will spread a spider web of pain and difficulty and chaos and sin, which will touch all of us. And as a result of that, we affect and change others in a bad way. And we nurture each other in the sin nature that we're born with. And that 
creates more pain on top of more pain. And that's why God sent Jesus and gave him as a sacrifice, as a perfect, sinless offering so that you and I could be restored back to right relationship with God. So God is not the author of our problems. He is the author of our solution. And we need to glorify him and stop questioning him because God alone is the one that has brought a solution to our pain. And yet we blame God. We do that. And so whenever I'm talking to somebody that's an atheist, which I have recently, and I asked what I hear Frank Turek ask, and I, I, if you want to read a, a book on apologetics, I highly encourage you to read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's a great book. Frank Turk's wonderful man. He goes across all of the United States of America, and he goes to college campuses. He puts a microphone up there at the end of his talk. He has every person that really most of them want to challenge him, and they ask him every question you can imagine. And so I watch a lot of these videos with my kids because I want them to be equipped in the generation that they're a part of. I don't want to avoid these questions. I want to get I want to hit, hit them head on. And so we watch a lot of these little five-minute clips, and they love it. They just love it. It's part of our devotional time as a family. And so he'll put the microphone there. He has no clue what somebody's going to say, but I love how he does it. So he'll, somebody will come up to the mic. He'll go, what's your name? And the guy will go, John. He'll go, hey, John, glad you're here. What's your question? And I, just, I did that really good. You, you'll see if you watch the videos. What's your question? And he's like this New Jersey guy. He's kind of loud like me. And, and, and so he, anyway, so the question will be like, uh, about the reliability of scripture, or often what the question will be is this, and, and they say it in a more sophisticated way. They're always, people are always trying to say it in a different way to sound, to stump you. But the question is this, if God is good, then why does he do bad things to good people? Why does he let good people suffer if God is good? Now, you can branch that question out in a hundred different ways, but it's the same question. And I love what Frank Turek does. This is what he does. He goes, that's a great question. Hey, can you put it to slide 41? Do you know why he can do that? Because he has a whole, he has a whole Rolodex of slides that are already made up because he never gets a new question. They're always the same. <laughs> you just watch him. And if he's in a place where they give him the sophisticated technology where he's got one of those pointers, because normally in liberal colleges, they don't give him that. They stuff him into these closet rooms and, and they protest people like him anyways. They just want him off these campuses, right? That's what our dollars are going to in our universities. Great. So don't get me started. <laughs> but if they give him technology, he'll go bink. And then he'll walk through his slide because he already has heard this question a thousand times. What I've learned, and I ask people this question, if Jesus was real, the Bible is true, which I believe, but listen, if Jesus is real and the Bible is true, would you believe him? And I've had people look me in the face and say, well, if it's true, I would believe him, but I wouldn't like it. You know what they're doing? They're revealing the fact that they have pain. This is not about logic. This is not about intellect. This is not about truth. This is about you have pain, and the reason that you are an unbeliever, you are actively against an unbelieving, is because there's some pain in your life that you need healing. And I'll tell you what, he is the healer of our pain. Friends, we need to go back to a place of stop, we gotta stop looking at people as our enemy and start looking at them as a target for us bringing healing into their life. So, so too often, us as Christians, we got the shield up because we're afraid of these arguments. A lot of these arguments are straw man arguments. They're not real. They're just full of someone's pain. 
And if we have eyes of faith and we have the heart of Christ, we can look into their heart and we can see you're not really talking about logic. You're not really talking about sort of this intellectual debate. You're not necessarily wanting the answer to what you're saying you want. What you need is the healer to touch your life because that's what you've experienced and me as well. And when his healing touches your life, In the context of your pain, I mean, talk about loyalty. I'm loyal to the Lord, not just because it's truth, although it is. Listen to me. I'm loyal because he's he's true. The word of God is true. Don't misunderstand me. But one one of the reasons why I'm loyal is because in my brokenness, God has healed my pain and nothing else can. He is that real. If the Bible is the truth and the Bible says he binds up the brokenhearted and he sets the captives free, come on, if you've experienced the healing of your pain from the Redeemer himself, say so. And no intellectual debate's going to take that from you. You could smile while somebody's indicting you on any intellectual transgression. You're like, well, I hear you. <laughs> Doubt. And the f- final point here is we must remember our Redeemer. In just a moment here I have left with you. Psalm 77, verse 11, he says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. He changes. He comes to a place of faith. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate, consider deeply, ponder all the work and the muse of your deeds, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the people. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. He shifts to a place of fresh faith. We need to shift to a place of fresh faith. But look how he got there. He got there because of honest confession. He got there because he processed his pain. He got there because he dealt with his doubt. And he shifted to fresh faith to believe God for more. I will meditate. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember what you have done for me and for others in the past. I will meditate on your greatness, not on my situation. We can easily meditate on our situation, our circumstances, our problems. I will be consumed in my mind with who you are and what you're like and the fact that you're supernatural, you're marvelous, you're magnificent, you're glorious. I will make much of God and less of myself. Yeah. I will declare his character. He is holy. He is good. He is righteous. He is trustworthy. And I will recall his plan. He is going to redeem. He sets things right. He fulfills his word. I'm not giving to you some New Year's optimism, friends. I'm telling you the truth of God's word, that if he hasn't done it initially, he will eventually, and he draws his people into a place of intercession and living in faith like we know our God is who he says he is. And sometimes when we look forward, we got to look back and lay hold of what he has done in order to grab into the future of what he will do. And that's what the psalmist shows us today. He says, I will remember. You know this word remember in Hebrew? It's a call to action. It's not just I will think about it. I will remember. You know, in Leviticus, I think it's 16, but in Leviticus, it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember. With with the communion, we remember the Lord. This is not some passive mental game. This is I will choose to actively participate In what I am engaging, I am engaging God, I am engaging his truth. I will remember, it is a call to action. Friends, you and I, today, this month, and this year, we've got to remember the goodness of the Lord, the love of our God, the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit, 
Come on, I was even praying this week. I was praying for the anointing of the Holy Ghost. You know, I, I went all Pentecostal. I didn't even say spirit. I'm praying for the anointing of the Holy Ghost. What do you mean? I mean, I remember times where all this confusion would flood into my mind, and I would go to church and just get blown away by the power and the glory of God. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. We talk, there's so many books written about what this generation needs. I'll tell you, this generation needs an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we need. We need to encounter His presence. We need to be healed of the things that are full in our life, this pain that we have. Uh, Listen, we don't want to avoid our pain. We don't want to cope in our pain. We want to contextualize our pain. What do I mean by that? When you take all of your pain in your life, your difficulty, your confusion, and you start, it's here. I'm not saying like, you know, you, you, you discard it. It's really here. It's here. You, you, you can't just let go of it sometimes. That's a weird statement. Let go of your pain. Okay. You got to contextualize it. Here it is. You offer it to the Lord. But when you start looking at the Lord and here's your pain, you start to see how big he is. Come on, this is good stuff. You, you, you see, you look at it, but then you look up and you see how big God is. And then you look back at your pain and you go, oh, <laughs> Big God, little bit of pain. He doesn't minimize our pain. I'm not saying if you've lost somebody, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But what I'm saying is God has something for you to be about in this life. God has a plan for our life. God wants to use our life for his plan. God wants us to be about what he's called us to be about. And often these things stop us. And we live out of our pain, our difficulties, and our doubt. And the Lord wants us to really have breakthrough. And to have that breakthrough, we need revelation. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We need healing. And as we receive that from the Lord, we will find ourselves living out of a place of breakthrough. Amen? Would you stand with me today? And let's do this because I believe that it's important. Um. Yes, it's a new year. No, I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but use whatever newness in your life to freshly commit to God. That's how I feel. Let's commit to the Lord as a church, as individuals, but as a family. Let's commit to God, no matter who you are or where you are, what you're facing. I, I, I ask us to do this, and I know occasionally we resist it, but just, just today, please don't. Even if you're at home, let's put our hands out to the Lord to receive from God. I'm just asking you to do this together and think about what's in your hands that you're offering to God. Talk about a gift exchange. This is what we offer to God. You know he wants us to be honest with what's going on inside of us. It is a gift to God when you're honest to God. He deems it as a gift, just like every father and mother when their child is honest with them. Sometimes there's no greater gift than your kid to just tell you where they're at. God wants us to do that. And what he'll do is he will take our pain and our difficulty and our confusion and our doubt and he will replace it with something that is transformational. And we may not even know what that needs to be, but he does. So right here, we stand where we are, God, and we have things in our life, confusion, loss, grief, pain, difficulty, doubt. We stand here the beginning of this year, and we want to move into this year fully committed and loyal to you. And we recognize there are things that can get in the way, and it's not our choice. It's not what we want, but it happens. And so we pray today, Lord, for a divine exchange. 
and that you would right now give us a breakthrough of revelation, wisdom, knowledge of your will to do according to the scriptures, to live the life that you want us to, not dismissing or discarding the things that have happened in the past, but contextualizing them. So we offer our lives to you and all that that is right now. We offer our pain to you, our difficulties to you. And we are not ashamed, Lord, to talk to you about them and give them to you because we know that if we don't give all of that to you, we will not have the divine exchange that we need. And so with our hands stretched out to you, we pray today, Lord, we ask for a breakthrough. God, we pray that you would bring us to a place where we could believe for more, no longer surviving, but advancing for your kingdom and for your glory, that we would be life-giving agents in your hands and for your usefulness. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.